This evening we are returning to our study in the book of Romans and find ourselves towards the end of chapter 2, specifically tonight, verses 17 through 24. So I encourage you to turn uh, to those verses tonight as we continue our study. There really are in chapter 2, just so we have a sort of a sense of where we're going, there are really only two remaining sections, this one and the one that follows, that we'll deal with, Lord willing, next week. And in this first section, in verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul continues to dismantle any argument that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, that would be the Jews, would put forth regarding their confidence in their own privileges as the chosen people. Now, this argument began back in chapter 2, in verses 1 and 3 specifically. If you look there uh, with me, you see in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another or on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And then he says essentially the same thing in verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, You who judge those who practice such things, and the such things are, of course, referring to chapter 1 and what he wrote about the Gentiles, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. You can see very clearly what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's changed his argument from the Gentiles, the, the ungodly pagan nations, now to the Jew or to the religious person of his day. And so it was a position of presuming, that is for the Jew, presuming that they would be safe from God's wrath on that great day of judgment because they knew God and God knew them. That would be their argument. Paul says just the opposite is true. And in this section, he doubles down on that argument by utterly destroying their position in a very persuasive manner, I hope to show us tonight. Next week, then, we'll look at the last section of chapter 2 at how Paul moves really to the heart of the matter. And there is a pun in that statement, to the heart of the matter, as he deals with the issue of circumcision, which was central, we know, to the Jewish faith and was the sign of the covenant that God had made with his people. In fact, God calls the covenant itself circumcision. And so it's so central to being a Jew and in relation to God by covenant that he has to turn his attention next week to that final sort of pillar of this uh, tower that they are building of self-confidence before God. Tonight we look at more broadly this general picture of their relationship to the law in Romans 2, 17 through 24. Please stand, if you will, as we read God's word in these verses, 17 through 24. Give your attention now to this, for it is the word of our God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, 
do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks tonight that you are a God who knows us, our hearts. They are laid open and bare before you. And so speak to those hearts by your spirit and through the preaching and the conscionable hearing of your word, that we might rejoice having been in your presence, that we might be changed because of it and prepared to live this week for your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for many of you who have asked about our time away. It was brief, but it was pleasant. I've told people that when we camp, as long as it's not raining when you're setting up and tearing down, it is a happy week. And so it was a happy week. We returned uh, from our annual camping trip with our friends that we have known for over 30 years, the ones who actually taught us how to camp. The husband, David, is a quiet, godly man with a great sense of humor. One of the t-shirts that he wears each year, and my wife asked him at one point where it was, and he brought it out, has a picture on the front of it making reference to the very popular, in its time, Calvin and Hobbes comic strip that first appeared on November 18, 1985. That means that probably a lot of people in this room have never read Calvin and Hobbes. It's probably okay, because the comic strip itself follows the adventures of Calvin, who is a precocious, mischievous, somewhat disrespectful at times, and adventurous six-year-old boy, and Hobbes, his mocking, stuffed tiger who only talks to him. Now, what makes the t-shirt very funny, at least to me, and it may be just me, I think it's to my wife too, is that instead of having the picture of the characters from the comic strip on his t-shirt, he has a picture of the reformer, John Calvin, next to the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes. I think that's funny. Uh, He thinks it's funny, but we share in that sense of humor. Well, going back to the real comic strip, I read this recently because we actually have a book of Calvin and Hobbes in our uh, home, so I read it sometimes, and I came across this one a couple of weeks ago. In it, Calvin, the little child or boy, says this, This whole Santa Claus thing just doesn't make sense. He goes on to say, why all the secrecy? Why all the mystery? If the guy exists, why doesn't he ever show himself and prove it? He goes on to say, and if he doesn't exist, what's the meaning of all of this? To which Hobbes says, I don't know. Isn't this a religious holiday? To which Calvin says, yeah, but actually I've got the same questions about God. I don't know Tom Wooderson, who is the author of Calvin and Hobbes, what his views are. He doesn't talk about God much in this comic strip, but I was curious to see this one. But I thought to myself in studying Romans where we are, this is how the pagan, unbelieving world views God. And this comic strip gives a voice to the kind of thinking that Paul has been dealing with in the first three chapters, especially the first one. God, if you exist, you are going to have to prove it to me. Well, I think and I hope that with me you're able to answer that sort of contention or question 
by saying that God's answer would be very clear to Calvin in this comic strip. I have, in fact, proven my existence by everything that I have made. Paul has told us in Romans chapter 1 that sinful mankind has rejected that revelation of God, though they know that he has made it plain to them and it is clearly perceived by them. Instead, man has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, all the truth that can be known about God, refusing to honor him, refusing to give him thanks and to see him as God. In response, we've read and known that God has begun to judge humankind, sinful mankind, now in giving them up to all kinds of dishonorable passions and to a depraved mind, leading them to do what ought not to be done and to give approval to those who practice such things. This is a great picture of the wicked world in which we live that we heard about this morning from Psalm 36, isn't it? This really is a very fitting picture of what the psalmist said, that the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He welcomes it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is Paul's assessment, and it is an accurate assessment because, of course, it is the Lord's assessment of this sinful, fallen, unbelieving world. They have rejected God outright, and Paul has dealt a huge blow to their confidence of standing somehow before God on the day of judgment when they must give an account. That's the first group that the apostle deals with in the first three chapters of Romans. There is a second group, of course, a second response that comes with respect to the prospect of God's eternal judgment on the day that Christ returns. And that sort of response comes from the religious people of his day. In Paul's day, of course, they would be the Jews, his own kinsmen again, according to the flesh. As we noted earlier, they judged that first group, the Gentiles, from their own standard, and they found them wanting. The Gentiles, or unbelieving pagan world, were not in relationship with God like they are and were. They clearly viewed themselves as superior to the Gentiles because of this, and therefore they they were protected, they argued, from God's wrath on the day of judgment. That's what Paul is dealing with now in chapter 2. Most of this section, chapter 2, through chapter 3, really. He's going to go back to include everyone. But most of this section really is about the religious people of his day. And this is what he continues to address in these last two sections of chapter 2. First, again, more broadly, their relationship to the law, how they understood that, why they took uh, refuge and confidence in that before God, and then more specifically, their relationship to the covenant sign of circumcision. So we're going to look at the first part, the broader part tonight, how Paul dismantles their argument so, so effectively. But before we do, we have to ask ourselves the question, maybe you've asked it, why does Paul spend much, so much time on this? Why does he spend so much time, so, much verse, so many verses on this particular issue? Well, the answer, I think, and it's very clear to me as I understand what Paul is doing in these chapters, is that it was not just a Jewish problem. It was, as one commentator notes, a human problem. It is a human problem that Paul is addressing here. So he's not really speaking just to the Jews, though primarily so. He's really speaking to all religious people of all ages. This is our natural tendency. 
It is a problem for all of us to imagine that we are what we really are not. It really is a problem for us to think better of ourselves than we ought to think. There are many warnings in the Bible against that. And it's our problem sometimes to create the illusion that we are something that we really are not. There are many people in religious circles and circumstances that often live this way live one way in front of that religious group of which they're a part and live a very different way in other places in their lives. Like man in the days of Babel in Genesis 11, we build a tower of our own self-image in order to make a name for ourselves, a tower that will reach the heavens so that we might somehow impress God with who we think we are. That's exactly what the Jews have done in Paul's day. And really, throughout all of their history in the Old Testament, they built this fortress of self-confidence into which they could flee, being confident in the day of judgment that they would be safe simply because of who they were, simply because of who they thought they were in relationship with God, without any reference to the actual lives that they were living day after day. And if you're familiar, I'm sure you are very much so with the Old Testament, you know the constant refrain is this idea that they were never living in accordance to what God had called them to be and to do. Paul has already dealt major blows to this idea in the previous verses, but now in these verses and the last section of chapter 2, he will completely tear down their argument by pointing out very simply and straightforwardly their hypocrisy, their hypocrisy. And so there are two main sections tonight. As I look at this, their fortress, what does that fortress look like? What does it consist of? In verses 17 through 20, and then in verses 21 through 24, you see Paul actually tearing down that fortress. So let's look at the fortress itself. And I'm using this image from Babel, from this idea that man sought to justify himself before God, to exalt himself before God, because it's a helpful one in my mind to see what the Jews are actually doing in Paul's day. And so here in verses 17 and following, really through verse 20, Paul clearly identifies in verse 17 the people to whom he's speaking, that he really began to speak to in chapter 2, verse 1. We made the argument, though he doesn't mention it in verse 1 and following in those verses, that it's very consistent, the argument, with what he says now in these verses, where very clearly he says, I'm talking to you, the religious Jewish people of my own day. And so, in opposition to the Gentiles, a different group, a different response, he speaks directly to them. Now, to be sure, to be a Jew meant to stand in a place of privilege. Paul has never denied anywhere in Romans or in any other place that that is a true statement. To be a Jew in Paul's day is to be in a position of privilege, of benefit, of blessing before God. And what he says, though not exhaustive in these verses, he'll say more in chapter 3, he'll say a lot in chapter 9, what he says about these privileges and benefits and blessings are actually very true. The problem is not that they're true of them as a people, that God had set them apart. The problem is they never lived up to what God had called them to be and to do in this world. As we'll see, he called them, set them apart to be a light and a witness to the world about who God is. And they never did that, ever. 
Certainly never perfectly, but not even ever throughout their history where they're able to accomplish that uh, because of their sin and rebellion against God. And so as I look at these verses, and we'll go through them quickly for the sake of time, I see in verses 17 through 20 that counting may be different. You may put some together, but I'm going to go through them very quickly in this way. There are nine advantages and privileges that Paul lists here, each one true in themselves, but the whole forming this sort of fortress that must come crashing down because it's in that fortress that they put their confidence and trust. That's why it has to come down. Notice he begins with this idea of calling yourself a Jew. Now, to call oneself a Jew was very clearly to identify yourself with a long history and line of covenant relationship going back to Abraham. This was common in Jesus' own day as he dealt with the Pharisees and scribes and argued that though you claim to be children of Abraham, your, your acts, your, the way you're living, and your rejection of me proves that you're not. But they would always bring that card out, if you will, and say, we're the children of Abraham. So he says, if you call yourself a Jew and stand in that line of blessing, that's the first sort of foundation of this uh, fortress that they're building. Secondly, you rely on the law. That means this embodiment at the end of verse 20, it says the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is what God had given to them uniquely through Moses. You rely, he says, on your knowledge of the law that you, among all the nations, received God's revelation and law, as we heard even this morning with reference to what God did on the mountain with Moses as he gave them the second table of the law or the second giving of the law in in, uh, chapter 34 of Exodus. Thirdly, you boast in God. Some translations say this, but most just leave it as the ESV does. You boast in God. It likely means that you're boasting in the fact that you know God and are in covenant with him. It's the idea that he's on our side. He chose us. We know him. And so our boast is in him. Paul doesn't mean here that this is a a boasting that is good and proper. He says they're using it in this way as a way to justify what they're doing with respect to God's judgment still to come. They boast that they know God. We know him. Number four, notice what he says, you know his will and approve what is excellent. This is what God revealed in his law, what he gave to his people. He revealed his will for them, how they ought to live. He didn't give it to the world, to the Gentile nations. They knew because they had the law what right and wrong was. Not simply because the working of the laws we saw last week was written on their hearts, that was true, but they actually had the law in which they were called to delight and to understand what is excellent, what is good and wise, what God's will is. And even greater than that, you were instructed in the law. That's number five if you're keeping track. They just go one after the other. And they were. They were commanded to instruct one another in the law of God. We saw that last week. They were commanded to write it on their doorpost, on the lentils of their home. They were required to write it on phylacteries that would be kept on their hands. They were required to teach it to their children. They were instructed every Sabbath in the law of God, unlike the nations. 
They were instructed daily in the law of God. To what end and purpose? This is where you get 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. To what end was it that they were instructed in the law of God? You see it there. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, that's why they were given the law to guide the blind. The blind are those who do not see the law, not physically blind, that they couldn't see, and therefore they were equipped to guide them. This was the blind spiritually who had no knowledge of God. They were given the law to teach to others that they might follow the Lord. They were given the law, number seven, that they might be a light to those who are in darkness. The darkness here always, a reference to our spiritual blindness and darkness of heart and mind. Isaiah 49 says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This verse is quoted in Acts chapter 13 as Paul clearly sees by that point in his earthly ministry uh, or his ministry in Acts He clearly sees that this very verse is speaking about the Lord's calling for him to go to the Gentiles. And so he quotes that verse when he says, The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you as a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was one of the reasons they were instructed and taught the law. But, of course, they failed in it. And then, number eight, an instructor of the foolish They were called to instruct the foolish. If you think about the wisdom literature of God's revelation, if you think about all that he had given them to instruct those who were foolish in this life, the law was given to that end. And finally, number nine, a teacher of children. That's clear in Deuteronomy 6 and other places. The Jews were required to train up their children, to teach them still even today. There is teaching and training in the law of God Uh, There's all kinds of ceremonies that are related to a young boy or a young girl transitioning into an adult, all centered upon the law of God and the teaching of that law among his people. This is how the Jews viewed themselves. And as I said earlier, all of it's true, actually. None of this is, is in error. This is exactly what God intended You see how Paul is identifying all of these portions of this fortress. They're all actually true, but they are extraordinarily distorted because of wicked hearts that twist what God had called them to do and actually make it a tower of self-sufficiency and self-deception. In Psalm 147, for instance, you have these verses regarding how they were to view themselves. He declares his word, his law to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. You see, that's a proper response. He has been gracious to us. That, that sort of revelation of God that he has been so kind to them to reveal his word, declare his statutes and rules, ought to have led them to live holy, godly, righteous lives. Instead, they lived lives of rebellion against the Lord. Now, as you think about all of this, these privileges, these 
um, these wonderful uh, things that the Lord has given to this people, can you see how easy it was for them to take those privileges and advantages and to twist them and to make them serve their own ends? And we know that's exactly what they did. If you, if you look and read through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and you look at the teaching of Jesus towards the scribes and the Pharisees, how many times does Jesus condemn these religious men, these religious leaders, for doing the very thing that Paul is going to do in these next verses? There's one, I think, that stands out to me in Matthew 15 as he's talking to his disciples about the importance of washing the, the cups for dinner, right? You know, we have to wash the inside of the cups. We have to make sure they're all clean, right? And Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees when they hold fast to this particular commandment, and yet their hearts themselves are wicked. And so he quotes in this passage, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. This is regarding giving and honoring your parents. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, he says. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, he said, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. They're blind guides. They themselves are blind, and they're leading others who are blind, and they will perish in the end. So before Paul ever sought by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write Romans and to tear down this fortress of of the religious man's self-confidence, Jesus did it all throughout his earthly ministry. He spoke so often to them about those religious leaders of his own day. Well, Paul is adding to that now as he comes in verses 21 through 24 to literally tear down this fortress. Like Babel of old, this mighty fortress must come tumbling down. For like Babel, it is an attempt of self-justification that must fall. And notice how he does it brilliantly, actually, throughout Romans so often, but here brilliantly. He does it through rhetorical questions. Rhetorical, penetrating, devastating questions. You see them in beginning in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourselves? Do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you yourselves steal? You who teach or who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who hate idols, do you not rob temples? Now, each one of these are interesting in themselves. There's theft, there's adultery, there's idolatry. Three very key sins, right? Sins that we understand as where they fall, as we noted this morning in our confession. There are some sins that are more heinous in the sight of God because of the sins themselves or because how they might impact others. And so here you have three very important sins here that Paul points out. 
But what they point to is really their hypocrisy. That's the point. What they point to is their hypocrisy. What they teach, what they preach, what they speak, what they say, what they claim to do. Paul says they do exactly the opposite. Each one of these are likely, likely something that the Jews of Paul's day were actually guilty of. I agree with those commentators who see these sins not merely as a reference to adultery in the mind, our thoughts, but actual acts of adultery. You think of the woman caught in adultery as Jesus gathers those who were guilty themselves in that scene in the scriptures. These were actual sins that they probably very likely were guilty of, and contemporary commentators in Paul's own day, Jewish commentators would speak out against these very things. You look at the history of the Jewish people throughout all of their history. These sins would have been commonly mentioned. And so they were likely guilty of these things. Robbing temples is a little bit vague. No commentator has a clear picture of what that is. One commentator quoted a writer in Paul's day who spoke specifically about the Jews stealing idols from temples and then turning around and selling them back to those who worshipped in those temples to sell them for profit. And so these are actual sins that Paul is aware of and he's condemning their hypocrisy. That's the issue. The issue is their hypocrisy. They pretended to be in this tower which had all of these wonderful things and their confidence before God was great because of these privileges. And Paul says at every point, he says, you're a hypocrite. You do the exact opposite. Perhaps you've had this experience. I did when I spoke to my father in the days after my conversion, perhaps even years, I would talk to him and I would ask him because he never did. I said to him, Dad, why, why don't you come to church ever? Mom was willing to go to church. Why don't you ever come to church? His answer was a devastating critique of what he saw. He said the church is full of hypocrites. His own experience growing up in a Roman Catholic home with his mother most faithful to that religion, every day going to Mass, but what he saw when he went into the churches where he went, he said, The church is just full of hypocrites. He never would go. Now, I praise God that he did go later in life, heard the gospel, don't know where my father is, now gone since 1999, but I'll never forget that statement that he made. Now, this, according to Paul in the Bible, has a devastating effect and consequence, as we see very clearly in verses 23 and 24. This is the end of Paul's tearing down. This is the final thing that he needs to say so that this whole tower, this fortress of their own self-confidence would come crumbling down. That's his goal. His goal is not to, to hate these people. His goal is not to shame these people. His goal is to take away their, their confidence in their own privileges and the blessings that God has given to them rather than in God himself. And notice what he says. He says it very clearly. You who boast in the law, you actually dishonor God by breaking the law. You boast in him that you know him, you're in relationship with him, you're in covenant with him. But actually what you're doing by how you're living is a dishonoring of God. And this, which I think very much relates to what my father noted and many others. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles 
because of you. You were meant to be a light to the nations. You were meant to shine as my people in this world, to to call and to draw others through my work in you, to believe in me, to come to me. And yet he says, because of you, the Lord's name is blasphemed. Now this quotation, all agree, is probably from two places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 now therefore what I have here declares the what have I here declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. The Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, probably what Paul is drawing from, says it this way, and this is probably where the quote is from. Thus saith the Lord, on account of you, My people, my name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. And then, of course, from Ezekiel 36, we read it earlier. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. He's talking about the new covenant. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. You can see Paul's point. It's clear. It's easy to see that wall, uh, that fortress of self-confidence, self-deception should fall. You cannot rest in something that dishonors God and and blasphemes his name. You cannot expect to be safe in the day of his wrath if this is what you're relying on. It's a house of cards. It must fall. They were guilty of judging others while being careless about their own lives. And that's what happens when you build great towers or great fortresses higher and higher of self-confidence and self-deception. You look around and you judge everyone else. I'm greater than you. I'm better than you. You see, this is not just a Jewish problem. This is a human problem. And one that we all have to be aware of. Next week, we'll look at the the last thing. And the last thing is so important. Paul saves it till last because it's the last thing that has to fall. It was so central to their identity as a people, circumcision. Paul has to deal with it head on and directly and Lord willing. We'll see that next week. Two things to say before we close. Beware, beware, brothers and sisters, of the danger of self-deception. Beware. One writer notes that self-deception is one of the greatest barriers to true religion. Early in my Christian life, back in the 1980s, the kinds of things and examples that preachers would use when they talked to people about deceiving yourself about being in a right standing with God because you're trusting in these things. So some of you older will remember these kinds of things, right? They were like faithful attendance in Sunday school and church attendance, for which you got a pin usually. You would get pins for faithful attendance over so many years. People would trust in that rather than in Christ, belonging to the right kind of church, memorizing lots of scripture, participating in lots of Bible drills. All of these things, attending this group or that group, all of these things would be used as illustrations that people would find their rest and comfort in with respect to their relationship to God. Now, the same thing can be true today. I attend this church as opposed to another. 
I'm faithful every single week. I read my Bible every day, have devotions. All of these things are good. Remember, they're good. But they're not our confidence before God. We, we can live in the dangerous place of self-deception. So see yourself. And that's the point of Romans, these chapters especially. See yourself as God does. Chapter 3 will tell you who you are by nature. You're a sinner in need of a savior. He's, he's rooting out, he's destroying every confidence that we could possibly have in ourselves. And he's saying the only one to whom we must look for hope, for salvation, is in Christ. That's whole, Paul's whole point in these chapters. But beware, brothers and sisters, how easily we can fall into this self-deception and the danger of it. It is truly one of the greatest barriers to true religion. And then secondly, and perhaps obviously, repent, turn from any, any tendency or any reality of hypocrisy in your life. Repent from any areas in your life where you may be living in a way that is not consistent with your profession of faith. Over the years, we have seen many preachers. You've heard the stories as much as I have. And it's usually this way, right? Many preachers, well known for preaching against all kinds of sins, only to be found out later that they themselves are guilty of the very same sins. How could they live so long in such a state only for God to bring down that house of cards? You know how they could do it? They were simply careless, spiritually careless about their lives, not taking heed of themselves before God, not meditating upon his word and seeing how God sees them apart from Christ and then rejoicing in the hope that is in only Christ. It's very easy to fall into that. There but for the grace of God, we say, don't we? There but for the grace of God go all of us. They were careless to not heed the warnings. You know, every time we come to the Lord's table, we as pastors make note of several who should not come. And you know what we say. We say it. You probably have it memorized. We, we clearly tell people who have no part in Christ, who are not true believers, that they should not come unless they eat judgment to themselves. We call them to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. But we always call those who may outwardly profess faith in Christ, and yet by their lives are living in open and unconfessed and unrepentant sin. You may say, Pastor, why do you do that every time? I think Pastor Fisher captured it so beautifully this morning, how beautiful it is to be part of a church that will call you out and that will get rid of you if necessary. I like the way he put it. It was a little shocking, but yes, uh, it's true, though. It, it, we, because our goal is not to please people, but to honor Christ and the purity of his church is central to us. And so we will, after a long pleading with you to turn from your sin, we will eventually say you are no part of this church because of it. But even before we get there, we call you at this table. I'll do it tonight. If you're living that hypocritical life, saying one thing, doing another, no one else knows except God. Do not come, but repent and turn from these things. And then, of course, look to Christ in faith. He is the one, of course, to whom we must look. You know that statement, that language of Isaiah 49. You may not remember exactly, but 
When the Lord says, it is a small thing for me to use you, to raise you up. You know, he's really talking in Isaiah 49 too. He's talking to the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's talking to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as in the eternal counsels of the Godhead, they determined to save a people for himself. And he says to them, listen, my desire was that this people that I chose and entered into covenant with would be a light, but they have not been a light. They have brought shame and dishonor to me. Instead, he says to this, the suffering servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so our only hope is in Christ. And the only response Paul is aiming at in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 is that that we would see these house of cards, these fortresses of self-confidence and self-deception fall to the ground And that we would look only to Jesus Christ, him alone, who fulfilled God's law perfectly, who was never guilty of hypocrisy. And that we would look to him with sincere faith, sincere faith. You've heard this illustration. I've heard it, but it's important to mention it here. You know that word sincere. It's used often. It's according to history. Dishonest sculptors in Greece and Rome would often cover their flaws in their works of art, in the sculpture. If it was chipped or cracked or damaged, the dishonest sculptors would take and melt wax and blend it into the marble and use it to conceal the flaws or imperfections. Therefore, an honest sculptor presented their work to the patron. They would make the statement that the the sculpture was sine sera, without wax. There was no wax here. There was no hypocrisy here. We know we never live a perfect life in this life to earn God's favor. We can't. But there is one who did and who does for all of those who would believe in him, who offered up himself to the Father for our sake. And Paul is saying, look to him. He is alone the fortress, the tower that will never fall, never fail, and will stand in the day of God's judgment. Timothy to Paul or to Timothy Paul wrote the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith sincere faith to believe without hypocrisy in the Lord Jesus Christ to love him to serve him as we prepare to come to the table let us heed these very things let us pray father It is to you that we turn now as we come to this means of grace with a sincere faith coming into your presence. The one who sees and knows everything, who sees our hearts now as they are. And so we pray that you would bless this means of grace to our lives, that we might be strengthened and nourished and built up in Christ, who is our faithful Savior. We thank you for him. We thank you for all that this table means. And we ask this in your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know the drill, as they say.